Good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor, especially if you're visiting us this morning. Um, and we do have some visitors with us, although they're not really. It's brilliant to have Tamara and Hannah with us again, and I hope that you'll get the chance to have a chat with them over tea and coffee at the end of the service. Um, and uh, it's just lovely to all be together uh, on this lovely day. Um, as you know, Katrina is on leave, and we are very grateful to our friends Lionel and Mo Gibbs for stepping in to lead worship while Katrina's away. Lionel is leading worship this morning, and Mo will lead next Sunday. So it's lovely to have them both with us this morning, and also to have the children with us too. That's great. Um, we're not using the screen today, so just notice that everything we need to follow the service today is just on our printed... Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. It's, it's nice to be back. Um, it's just over three years since myself and Mo were here, and it's nice to see so many familiar faces. You haven't all abandoned the place. <laughs> no, it is, it is nice. It's been really nice to catch up with some people this morning too. We're going to be thinking a lot about families today. And our call to worship comes from one of a very famous passage of scripture from the beginning of the Gospel of John and beginning in verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing has been made, that, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and through and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children, born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. It's a fantastic passage. I don't think I could ever get bored of it. And it's one of the few places in scripture that we have some attempt to consider what was it like for the almighty God to choose to become a child. But it also has that extra bit at the end, which outside of this room would be the most bizarre proposition that we have the right to become children too. The right to become children of God. To become someone else's child. And yet here we are. Children of God. Part of the largest family here on earth. United by his spirit, come to rejoice and worship our Heavenly Father. If you are able to stand, please do. And we will begin our worship. We'll continue our worship, sorry, by singing Father, Lord of all creation.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are gathered here as your children, adopted into your family and united by your Spirit, liberated by your Son. We gather here to worship you, to celebrate as a community the wonders of your work in our lives. May our singing bring you joy. May our thoughts, our hearts and our actions be those which glorify you. May we encourage one another, strengthen one another as your spirit not only works in us, ministering to our deepest needs, but also through us to bring healing to those around us, conveying forgiveness, bringing reconciliation and encouragement. Not only to those who are gathered with us this morning, Lord, but to those who we will see later today and those who are in our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for this freedom, this opportunity and this ability to praise you. And may our hearts be lifted up this morning as we rejoice to know your name and to know our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let us pray together as Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power of the Lord, forever and ever.
Okay. As I said, today we're going to be thinking a lot about family relationships. So I thought I'd start with a question for the parents. How many of you have tied your children up? <laughs> Anyone? No, really tightly so they can't move. You're all looking at me like I'm daft. I, I tied my own children up this morning. Well, I didn't tie them up, I strapped them in. It's a similar kind of thing, you know. And uh, let's be honest, there's many a parent who's thought, these children are driving me mad, let's stick them in the car and go for a drive. <laughs> let's be honest, what are you doing? You're tying them down and keeping them constrained so they can't be up to any more havoc. <laughs> we don't tie our children down, but we do strap them in. And I'm going to be honest, I still wear a seatbelt in the car. But if I was to ask you, I mean, there's many a child doesn't like it. I don't know if any of you have had that situation where your child suddenly becomes as stiff as an ironing board and you feel like that cruel parent that's trying to get them to bend in the middle because <laughs> they've got to get into the car seat. Or they manage to do that one thing in the high chair where they've gone so straight and because they're not quite strapped in, they'll shoot straight out the bottom and clout their chin on the table. And then they look at you like, why did you let that happen? <laughs> and you know, it's not your fault. We strap our children in because we love them. We strap our children in because we don't want them to hurt themselves and we don't want them to come across any danger. And I was thinking about this, and no, I didn't bring the rope to tie up the children. <laughs> Though Sarah did say, why have you got a rope, Dad? I said, it's for tying things up. I said, you're not going to be tying people up. I said, no, no. Um, but I thought we could use it. I also wanted to mislead you a wee bit. We're going to cross a road. Right, Peter, you're the smallest person here. Right. Are you going to come? No? Maybe not. Sarah, do you want to come up? No? <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. God, you can hold my hand. Now, let's imagine this is the edge of the road. What's the first thing we do before we cross the road? What's the first thing Daddy always says to you? <laughs> That's, it's okay. No, we can go to back then. What do you, you do? What did I ask you to do, actually? Hold my... You can take it back. It's okay. Oh. First thing you do, the most common tie we have with our children is actually just hand-to-hand. We grab them by their hands when they're out. Um, and if you lose them when you're shopping, then myself and one of us runs to the front door to make sure none of them are going out the door because then at least we know they're still in the shop somewhere. Uh, I was that small boy who one day woke up, didn't know, couldn't see my mum, and for some reason I thought she'd gone to the shops without us, got my brother up, and the pair of us headed up, <laughs> up to town. Um, <clears throat> but what happened? Do you think we got very far? No, because what did we do? We stopped at the first road we came to and waited for someone to help us cross the road because you don't cross the road by yourselves. <laughs> but my brother, who was still quite small, had a nappy wrapped around his legs and we were on the little toy tractors and it didn't work. Okay. Um, can I ask yourself to come up? Thank you. I'm presuming you're big enough now that you don't hold your mum and dad's hands when you cross the road. <laughs> and I'm right in thinking you go, can you show me how would you cross the road? Um, look both ways. Okay. See if there are any cars coming. And then walk across. And then walk across. It's nice and safe. Who taught you that? Your parents taught you that, and you do that every time. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's a different kind of tie, isn't it? Have you thought for a minute that every time you do that, it's the same as when your mum used to take your hand when you were quite small? It's the same thing. You're doing the binds that your parents gave you. Thank you. When I was a child, we had the Green Cross Code. Did I, was it, it wasn't Tufty the squirrel, was it? Who was the safety squirrel you had before the Green Cross Code? It was Tufty, yeah. Because I suddenly remembered him yesterday as well, thinking... Yes, but no, like yourself, it's my parents that taught me. But even now, when I cross the road, I do the same thing. Are your parents trying to ruin your lives by telling you how to cross the road? 
no, <laughs> no. But because they love you, they've taught you how to cross the road, and it means you can now go, we can go out freely and safely and do so many things we couldn't have done if we hadn't been taught how to cross the road. A lot of things in our lives that people see as ties and binds and rules and instructions are actually there to enable us to do things we couldn't do otherwise, but they change shape. As a child, you strap them in, you tie them down. Though you need to be careful who you say you're tying your children down to. Some people take it very literally. Um, <laughs> as they're bigger, you still hold their hands. But you hope that when they get older, they're still tied by the instruction you gave them when they were younger. In Hosea, God says this through Hosea. He says, I led them, this is chapter 11, verse 4. I led them with cords of human kindness and with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and I bent down to feed them. Cords and ties. But the cords and ties that give us the freedom to live. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those people who love us, who take care of us, who feed us and look after us. Help us to listen to them and to follow their wise instruction. Help us to enjoy the freedom we have and to see the opportunities for what we can do. And to most of all, hear and listen to you. Amen. If you're able to stand and would like to do so, we're going to sing the churches wherever God's people are. Our first reading is from Hosea, chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. 
The Lord says, When Israel was a child, I loved him and called him out of Egypt as my son. But the more I called to him, the more he turned away from me. <coughs> my people sacrificed to Baal. They burnt incense to idols. Yet I was the one who taught Israel to walk. I took my people up in my arms, but they did not acknowledge that I took care of them. I drew them to me with affection and love. I picked them up and held them to my cheek. I bent down to them and fed them. They refused to return to me, and so they must return to Egypt, and Assyria will rule them. War will sweep through their cities and break down the city gates. It will destroy my people, because they do what they themselves think best. They insist on turning away from me. They will cry out because of the yoke that is on them, but no one will lift it from them. How can I give you up, Israel? How can I abandon you? Could I ever destroy you as I did Adma or treat you as I did Zeboim? My heart will never let me do it. My love for you is too strong. I will not punish you in my anger. I will not destroy Israel again. For I am God and not a human being. I, the Holy One, am with you. I will not come to you in anger. My people will follow me when I roar like a lion at their enemies. They will hurry to me from the west. They will come from Egypt as swiftly as birds and from Assyria like doves. I will bring them to their homes again. I, the Lord, have spoken. And then from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. You have been raised to life with Christ. So set your hearts on the things that are in heaven, where Christ sits on his throne at the right-hand side of God. Keep your minds fixed on things there, not on things here on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your real life is Christ, and when he appears, then you too will appear with him and share his glory. You must be put to death then, you must put to death then the earthly desires at work in you, such as sexual immorality, indecency, lust, evil passions and greed, for greed is a form of idolatry. Because of such things, God's anchor will come upon those who do not obey him. At one time you yourselves used to live according to such desires, when your life was dominated by them. But now you must get rid of all these things, anger, passion and hateful feelings. No insults or obscene talk must ever come from your lips. Do not lie to one another, for you have taken off the old self with its habits and have put on the new self. This is a new being which God, its creator, is constantly renewing in his own image in order to bring you to a full knowledge of himself. As a result, there is no longer any distinction between Gentiles and Jews circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians, savages, slaves and free, but Christ is all. Christ is in all.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider your word, may you hear, may we hear your voice. You'd speak to our hearts and our minds with clarity. That we'd be encouraged and corrected. But most of all, we would know you better and be that bit closer. Amen. I wonder how many of you have been to see Toy Story 4? Just a couple of you. It's, it's a really interesting film, and I went to see it at the wrong time, giving some of the books I was reading. Because at the beginning of it, um, the little girl has gone to nursery, she's found some rubbish, and she's made a toy out of it. Now, in true fashion, this toy becomes the most precious toy she could have, even though it's made up of a bit of a fork and some pipe cleaner and other things. But in true fashion, you can now spend £30 buying a model of something that was made from junk in the toy shops. I can't help but think someone's missed the point somewhere. But the first half of the film, or the first half hour, this toy wants to keep throwing itself in the bin because it's trash. It's been created for Molly's entertainment, but it doesn't want to be created from all these entertainment. It wants to be trash because it's meant to be trash. It should be in the bin. And there's always that bit in the film where it learns how precious it is to Molly and therefore actually it's worth being a toy and so on. From an existential perspective, there's part of you thinking, what are they doing to children when they think about these things? But in a similar vein, have you heard of a man called Raphael Samuel? Raphael Samuel is a 27-year-old from Mumbai who is suing his parents for giving birth to him without his permission. His argument being is he didn't choose to be born, therefore everything he suffers in his life is their fault and it is their obligation to provide and care for him for his entire life. He doesn't exist by his own choice, therefore it's their fault. Now he's not a Job who's going through a horrendous lifestyle and cursing the day he was born. He's actually living quite a comfortable lifestyle. As I said, both his parents are lawyers, and I think he lives in quite a flush part. He live, you know, he's got a fairly comfortable living. But he is a strong believer in a thing called antinatalism, the idea that you shouldn't have children in this world because people have children for selfish reasons. They have children because they want to have children. They have children because they want a little pet or almost like a toy or a dolly. He argues that people want children for all sorts of reasons and pay no due or care to the kind of suffering that child is going to go through as they grow up. His mum has come back. She's taken a good rent. She looks forward to saying, well, how, how, is it, how are you going to... Uh, what's your argument that we could have given you a choice before you were born? But in good spirit, he said, but having said that, now that I've met you as an adult, I'm not sure I've chosen to have you either. <laughs> but... Uh, And that's the thing, isn't it? It comes down to choice. He's arguing we didn't choose to be here, therefore everything we go through, everything we suffer, is someone else's fault. He's painting a very black view of what it means to be alive and to be human, as if your life is made up of nothing of but suffering and pain and torment and trials and tribulations, even though he himself is not going through any of that. It's a very old-fashioned argument. You, one you'll actually find in Scripture very briefly because Paul turns to the Corinthians and says, at this moment in time, given the crisis that you're going through and the impending famine and everything else, I don't think now's a good time to get married. But he then goes on to say, however, if you do get married, you haven't sinned, you've not done anything wrong, I just don't think now's the right time. 
I dare say a couple of parents have had that conversation with their own children at some point saying, well, no, we're all for the wedding. I'm just not sure that the middle of July or whenever is the right time for it. But it's that idea of choice. And it is a bit insensitive because it presumes that every woman who wants a child has a child and that every woman that's had a child had it in circumstances that they wanted to. And then, of course, we have those things as our children grow up. Do they become the people we wanted them to be? The argument you have as a parent with a grown child, and maybe the child says, oh, you've never been happy with me. I've never been the person you hoped I'd be. And you're sat there facing this adult that used to be the little two or three-year-old that ran around your legs and thought you were absolutely amazing, who was when at 13 and 14 thought you were the most embarrassing thing on the planet. But maybe by the time they're 43 or 53, start to actually appreciate that actually maybe you weren't so bad after all. And children do grow up through these phases. And here we have God revealing his heart as to what it is to be a father. Or some would argue it's, it's, he's expressing what it is to be a mother. I could almost argue it's, he's expressing what it is to be a single parent. He's both father and mother. But there are a couple of things that are very different about the way God chose Israel. One is he did choose them. And there is something about being chosen that's very precious because it means you know you were wanted. They can't ever turn around and say, oh, we were an accident, we were a mistake. We weren't meant to happen. You know, you've always believed we ruined your life. No, they know that they were wanted by God. That's what being chosen means. But because he is God, he chose them knew, knowing everything there was about them. They can't have that argument saying, oh, you must be so disappointed in us that we didn't turn out the way that you hoped. Because he chose them knowing their faults and failings. He chose them knowing all the things that they were doing and all the things they were going to do. And yet he still chose them. He still wanted them. Now, in some translations, it flips between calling Israel Israel and calling Israel Ephraim. And it's worth bearing that in mind because here we have the heart of the, the father of the prodigal son in many ways. During the time when the son had gone off to live a riotous life, squandering all the benefits he had from being the son, but giving no regard or respect to his father at the same time. Because Hosea was prophesying to the northern kingdom. And the story of Ephraim is one that I think is quite pertinent for us in our current climate. You'll remember of hearing of King David, who was the king over a united Israel of the tribe of Judah. And he had a very wise son, Solomon, who, in his wisdom, seems to have done quite a few foolish sons. But his son, Rehoboam, was not a very good king. He wasn't very popular and decided that he was going to try and be a hard, tough king. And all he did was upset everybody. He was going to burden them with heavy taxes. He was going to do all sorts of things. And Jeroboam, who was an Ephraimite, turned and said, we're not, we're not Judeans, we're not of this tribe, we have nothing to do with them, we don't have to accept this man as our king. And he and ten tribes separated and did their own thing. But there was a problem because Jerusalem and the temple were in Judea. So whilst they're busy deciding to fight for their own sovereignty and their own way of doing things and the right to govern themselves and have nothing to do with this corrupt, rotten King Rehoboam, they are also cutting themselves off from God. 
Now, I want you to be very careful about what I'm saying. I'm not arguing with their politics. Rehoboam was not a good king. They were not wrong in their assessment of him. But in politically separating themselves from Rehoboam, they also separated themselves from their brothers and sisters, the rest of the family of God, and did so to such an extent that they would not worship in Jerusalem because that would have meant worshipping with their brothers and sisters who were Levites and Judeans. Their politics, their right to sovereignty, their right to decide for themselves what was the right or wrong thing to do was more important to them than their relationship to God. I wonder how the relationship between Israel and Judea would have been if the Israelites had remained faithful in their worship of Yahweh, remained faithful in their worship at the temple, in their sacrifices and going to the festivals. It may have been they still remained two separate countries politically, but as a people they would have remained united. There still would have been that one family. However, as we often see, and I'm sure as we ourselves have done, I'm going to stand on my own two feet. I'm going to be self-dependent. I'm going to show everyone that I don't need anyone's support or anyone's help. Of course they do, they need lots of help and support. And in Ephraim, in Israel's case, of course it came from Egypt because they had the threat of Assyria. There's Egypt, we'll go and ask Egypt for help because they're not going to ask their neighbours because their neighbours, that would mean making friends again, they're not going to do that. And Egypt does the truly deceptive thing, says, yes, of course we can help you out. Pay us lots of money, and of course they didn't. They weren't strong enough, and they weren't really that bothered. They just wanted the liege. But let's go back a step to that small child, where God says, they do not realise it was me that healed them. When you're bringing up your own children, you do lots for them. Now, I need to say up front, I am painting a certain picture, so if everyone, anyone is sat here who is pregnant and about to have their first child, please, parentage isn't as depressing as maybe I'm about to portray it. There are lots of joys, there are lots of wonderful things to look forward to about having children. But once the child is born, it's 24-7. So many parents, first-time parents say, you don't get a break. Suddenly there's this human being there who's just alive. They don't know the difference between day and night. I remember that with my eldest, when he was first born, one night been away. I said, how do you, how do you teach day and night time to this child at three o'clock in the morning, who didn't need fed and didn't need a nappy change, but also had no concept of the fact it was three o'clock in the morning, just was awake. And your life revolves around these small people. And you do lots for them, of course you do. You're constantly buying them things, you're feeding, you're cleaning them, you're taking care of them, and you do it because you love them. Sometimes you're worn out, and sometimes you do it because, well, you have to. Not every moment as a parent is that wonderful gushing, oh, I can't wait to take my child out for the day. Sometimes it's a, oh, I suppose we better take them out because otherwise they're going to run riot in the house. <laughs> but you love them and you do so much for them. But you also don't burden them with that knowledge. I mean, imagine telling a five-year-old, do you not realise how much we do for you? And you don't keep a tally chart of just how much money you've spent on them. You don't want them to grow up with this guilt and burden of, oh, ever since I've come along, I've just been, just been a load to my parents. I've just been a burden to them. I've changed their lives. They no longer have friends. They don't have a social life. They spend every evening driving me around. Because you do those things because you actually want them to have a life. You want them to have a social life. You want them to take part in clubs and so on. Um, and I will be honest, I mean, I've had six students, some will say, oh, Sarah and Peter want to get involved in this. And in the back of my mind, I think that's great. Are you driving them? Because you 
get to that stage, you come home from work, you have enough time to get your tea, and then you shove the children in the car and you take them out somewhere. And at some point you realise, what are we going to do? But God's complaint with Ephraim wasn't that they didn't realise everything God was doing for them. In the same way that my parents wouldn't expect me to do everything for, know everything they did for me. And I kind of hope when you do something for someone else, you don't make them feel guilty about it, like, I hope you realise what I'm doing. His complaint was they credited someone else with everything God had done. He chose them, he nurtured them, he brought them out of Egypt, he freed them from slavery, he gave them ability to live, he gave them land, he gave them homes, he gave them everything they needed. And they said, oh, isn't it great that Baal has done all this for us? And they worshipped the Ashtoreths and they worshipped all the false gods and they took all the habits of all the nations around them. Because you see that in your own children as well at times. As you're sat around having dinner together and you've been trying to tell your children something for ages and all of a sudden they come out with a really bright idea because their pal at school said it. And you're sat there thinking, I've been trying to say this for six months. I ought to just tell your pal at school what to say and then it will save me a lot of time and effort. And then of course there's always that moment they think someone else's parents are fantastic. And you think, well that's lovely, that's nice. Someone else's parents can come and pick you up on Sunday morning then, can't they? But as a parent, you get used to this as your children exploring. And yes, you do get taken for granted as parents. Then they get to the teenage years, as I've also said, and there's also that bit where they still expect you to do everything for them, or can do, but they look at you as to why should I show you any gratitude? And then after about 20 years and they leave home, you have the empty nest syndrome because your entire life for 20 years has been focusing around these people that are now not there. And so you pick up the phone one night to give them a call. And at the other end, they, well, now they can say it's you. They might not choose to answer the phone. <laughs> oh, it's just mum. It's just dad. That bit where it's, why did mum and dad want to talk to me? Oh, such a hassle. Do we have to come to yours for Sunday dinner? Do we have to do this? Oh, I just thought I'd give you a call and see how you are. I'm fine, thanks. I'm just going out. Bye. Right up until that point where they can't pay the rent. Or maybe they're struggling for something. And then they pick up the phone. All of a sudden, you are wonderful mum and dad again. Oh, oh, Mum, Dad, um, um, can you help me out? They want the privileges of being a child, but seem to have forgotten that relationship, that connection, which comes from being a child, being your child. They call you Mum or Dad, but apart from asking you for things and expecting you to provide for them, it doesn't go much further. And yes, I am painting a certain picture. Sadly, the relationship between God and Israel was worse than that. And I kind of hope no one in this room has had this where it's gone to such an extreme. But sadly, I expect there will be some people have. Where your child has gone off to do their own thing, decided that who are you, God's old-fashioned, your ways of living are old-fashioned, you don't get the modern world. And they get caught up with those groups and those friends, which means they've never got any money because they've now got all the habits, whether it's drinks or drugs or whatever else, or they're in an abusive relationship, and they're starting to suffer physically and mentally. And you are crying out because it hurts so much to see your child going through that. But your child's not a child anymore. Your child's 26, 36. And but every time you try to help them, the further away from you they go because they don't want your help. Or maybe you have managed to try and help them and got them to come home but realised they were being so aggressive and violent and deceitful that actually you couldn't have them in the house, not for your own security or, or anyone else's. And you don't know what to do. 
And this is the stage that God has got to with Israel. They are chasing after all these other religions, all these other ways of life, which are abusive, which do involve temple prostitution and drugs and getting involved in wars and relying on countries that are going to use them, abuse them and rob them of all their riches. So every time they have something, someone else takes it from them. Anything, they will do anything to give themselves the appearance of being able to be independent and free and standing on their own two feet, except the one thing they need to do is to acknowledge the God, their loving parent, their loving father who brought them into being in the first place. Because that might be weakness. But this passage reveals something about... I, for me, I find that this passage revealed a couple of things about God that help us see his heart more than so many passages. There are two things he says. One is in verse 8. He says, My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. He's just declared that he knows that because of the choice of Israel, they are heading for destruction and he can't do anything about it because they refuse to acknowledge him and accept him and want their help. But at the same point, he's not going to treat them the same way he's treated others in the past. My heart has changed within me. God does not overcome the situation in a way that he then separates himself from his people. His heart is so caught up in their lives and in their actions, even though they refuse to acknowledge him and have rejected him and have taken themselves so far away, it is tearing his heart apart. If you can say such a thing, God is moved. This isn't the incarnate Jesus who's come as a human being and suffers human frailty. This is God Almighty whose heart is being torn by compassion he has for his own children. And even though they are they have done everything they can to try and distance themselves from him. He refuses to let go. He refuses to stop caring. But at this stage, there is what for me became one of the greatest verses I've read for a while because I just suddenly felt a weight off my shoulders. And I say this to you as parents because he then says, because I am God and not human. That as a parent... That moment where he is having his heart torn, his heart is changed within him, he refuses to treat them as they should. He refuses not to have compassion on them. He refuses not to have the hope that they will return. He has to call upon his very nature and character as God to be able to do it. God asked his prophets to do many things, but it's as that anguish that he felt as a parent where he says, I am God and not human. Because I am human and not God. I have six children. Some of them have put me through the ringer. I have not always reacted the best way. I've not always acted the best way. I've been exhausted, stressed, tired, pushed to the limit, spun round. Life has got the better of me. And I can say that with the confidence of knowing I, I'm not the only parent here that's saying that. There are times that the way I've speak, spoken and treated my children has, was not right. My eldest child is going through situations at the moment where he's doing, he has, he's pushed himself away from everyone. And your heart bleeds. You don't know what to do, you don't know what the right thing is to do. And you still care for them even though they've gone so far away. 
but I am human and not God. I am weak. I cannot do what God can do. I think many parents beat themselves up on many occasions. Why is my child getting the better of me? Why is this like this? Why can't it be like that? Why is it not working out? Why are things not going right? What am I doing wrong? And every parent will be tell you about that time they, 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 when you take your children out in public. Are you worried about your children's behaviour or are you worried about what other people will say about your children's behaviour? Because you feel like you're being judged. You feel like people are looking at you to say, oh, well, that's not very good. Obviously, they're a good a bad, not a good father, not a good mother. And you burden yourself with so much. It's not easy being a parent. To the extent that when God himself had his heart challenged by the behaviour of his children, says, but I am God and not a man, not human. It required all God's strength, God's character of who God is, to be able to do this. And this is God revealing his heart to us. This is our Heavenly Father, Heavenly Mother, letting us know just how much compassion he has for us, how much he loves us. Who would not want to be part of his family and have a father like that? For all the things that we might think we have done in our lives to upset God, to disappoint God, to let him down, if anything, this passage lets us know that he is already determined. He's not going anywhere. He's not letting us go and he's staying with us. Yes, there are times we'll have hurt him, grieved him, upset him. But he is still here. We will celebrate communion later this morning. Communion is a family meal which brings us together as a family. And we can approach it one of two ways. We can either approach it as something we do as a duty, like going to visit Granny once a month on a Sunday, because we do it once a month on a Sunday to keep Granny happy. And it also means Mum's going to stop asking, when are you going to visit your Granny? Almost like the one thing we do, but if we do it, it just keeps us in touch enough to be in the good books. But this is where Colossians comes in. In Colossians it says Christ has died and rose again and our lives are hid with him. What does it mean to have your life hidden with Christ? It's a family identity. They lived in a culture where people went to the temple, paid their dues and went away again. But the way they led their lives had nothing to do with anything else. They'd done their dues, they went, paid their dues and left. And Paul is saying to the Christians in Colossae, he's saying, allow yourselves to be Christ's all the time. Embrace that family identity. Take on the things that it is to be Christian and abandon those things that aren't. You're not Greek, you're not Jew, you're not a slave, you're not free, you are Christian. Take that on. And as Christians, we are part of that family. So rather than fighting for our rights, our independence, our sovereignty, there is an element of seek those things which unite us as a family that are a blessing to the family, that encourage us as a family. Love, not lust. Generosity, not greed. Humility, not pride. I have painted a rather dark picture of what it can be to be part of a family, and a family at war is a horrendous thing, but a family that is together is such a blessing. To be part of a community, to be part of a family, there is nothing better. 
And we have a role to play in making that go well. That this family becomes a blessing to others as much as it is a blessing to us. Because we all acknowledge our one parent, our Heavenly Father. And we take him on. We dress ourselves in Christ. We are clothed in Christ. And we allow ourselves to be Christ. So let us listen for God in our prayers for ourselves and for others. Let us pray. Lord, we bring before you the complex world of human relationships, capable of bringing great joy and also deep sorrow. This morning we pray particularly for family relationships parent and child, grandparent and grandchild. We bring to mind the families of our own community here within Hillhead. Our youngest babies and toddlers, being nurtured in their earliest days by parents who are in the process of learning so much themselves. Our children exploring, pushing boundaries, absorbing information, and together with their parents developing relationships that will set courses for the future. 
our teenagers beginning to explore ideas, thinking about frameworks for living, discussing and debating, rebelling, and parents creating the space, sometimes anxiously, to support them, support them in the flowering of their unique life. Our young adults becoming more independent, the prospect of leaving home and parents experiencing competing emotions, pride yet pain, love yet loss. In the silence, let us pray for love and wisdom for us all. The love of wisdom of God, which encourages and enables life and good relationships in all their fullness. And for some children and parents of our community here in Hillhead, all of this has another layer, that of being uprooted from your own country, fleeing in fear, hoping to find sanctuary and a safe life in another country. And so in the silence, let us pray for love and wisdom for us all, for those who seek sanctuary and those who try their best to offer hospitality, empowered by simple humanity and the love of God. And in our complex society where pressures of work and challenges of family life can mean that parents are not able to cope with everything, we give thanks and pray for grandparents who are able to bring the support needed. And in silence, let us pray for all grandparents in the continuing support of their adult children and their grandchildren. We're called each week to pray for our, widest, our wider Baptist family. And today we remember Ivy Young, the Ministry Administrator at our Union Headquarters in Glasgow and for the huge amount of work that she does in administering all of that work. We pray for the fellowship at Hopeman, for the fellowship at Inverkeething, and for the fellowship at Inverness. This morning we also remember Stuart Wadsworth, who yesterday retired after 30 years service as the minister of Lark Hall Baptist Church. Loving God, in this fellowship here, we represent diversity of relationship, of culture, of background, of politics, of just sheer insight into life. And so we remember the family of nations represented in our small fellowship. Scotland, England, Wales, Ireland, North and South, 
Nigeria, Kenya, Malawi, Iran, Germany, the United States of America, Canada, Cuba, and our wider relationships with France, with Japan, with Finland, and Mongolia. Blessed be the tie that binds us all, in our families, in this community of faith, in our union of churches, to our world and to all creation. Loving God, our Mother and our Father, hear our prayer and be with us as we continue in our prayers in the giving of an offering. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to give. This opportunity to serve you with our finances and in a way that benefits your church and your people. We pray, Lord, that you would receive these gifts and use them for your purposes. To glorify yourself. To bring blessing to others and to continue drawing us closer to you and binding us together as one. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. And now we come to celebrate the family meal. We come to communion and we have a choice. A choice that is yours alone to make for you are all invited. This is an open table for all who love the Lord are free to eat and drink, eat of the bread and drink of the wine. But let us do so with a desire, with a hope, with a spirit to embrace his love for us and to allow ourselves to become united with him and with each other, to take on the family name as we share in this family meal. 
Christ died and rose again. So let our lives be hid with him and unite to each other. We come to this table not because we must, but because we may. Not because we are strong, but because we are weak. We come not because of any goodness of our own has given us a right to come, but because we need mercy and we need help. We come because we love the Lord a little and we would love to, like to love him more. We come because he's loved us. He still loves us and continues to love us and he gave himself for us. So come, let us meet the risen Christ for we are his body. Let us pray. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open and all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. So on the night he was betrayed, we remember that he took bread as he was gathered with his disciples. And he broke it. And he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. And Heavenly Father, we pray that as we take this bread, you would remind us and encourage us and strengthen us as we remember the sacrifice you made for us. Bring to our hearts and minds those things that we need to remember and those things that we need to know. Amen. As you receive the bread, please eat. Likewise, when supper was ended, he took the cup and he passed it to his disciples, to his friends, and said, Take and drink. This is the blood of the new covenant. Whenever you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, you shed your blood so that we might have life and life eternal. And by your spirit in our, life, in our hearts, in our lives, Lord, may we live life in its fullest sense. As we share your cup, Lord, may we again be aware of your presence. Know your love, your acceptance, your desire for us. Amen. As you receive the cup, please hold on to it and we will drink together. As one in Christ, let us now drink. If you are able to stand and you desire to do so, let us continue to worship the Lord in song and sing Blessed Be the Tie That Binds.
kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know his love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.